Hello and welcome to Business Without Bullshit, the podcast brought to you by Ori Clark, who have been giving straight-talking financial and legal advice since 1935. I'm Dominic Frisby, and alongside me today is my co-host Andy Ori, who is helping the cause of bringing the fascinating business stories of Ori Clark's clients to a wider audience with this podcast. And a quick reminder, if you like what we do here, please do rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, at BizWithoutBS. Now, with that being said, hello, Andy. How are you doing today? Who is our guest today? And what are we going to be talking about? Thank you, Dom. Well, what a wonderful introduction. Uh, Today's guest is my very good friend, William Laurie. He was an art dealer and co-owner of Laurie Shabibi, a Dubai-based art gallery and one of the first, with a degree in art history and a specialist in Islamic art. William's been involved in the Dubai art scene since 2005 with the British auction house Christie's, uh, organizing their first international art auction there in 2006 and then becoming their first art specialist based in the Middle East, checking out, which subsequently led Will into the co-founding Laurie Shabibi. It's quite fun saying Shabibi, I've just decided. We are in good company, Dom. William, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Dom and Andy. I don't normally call you William. That was a bit strange. You can switch to Will if you want. Yeah, I might go Will. Anyway, where to begin? I mean, I guess the first question is, is how did you get into the world of art dealing? Well, I was doing an art history degree and uh, in Edinburgh, and I was very, very lucky to be there at a time when there was a really legendary professor of Islamic art. Don't ask me how that happened, but there he was. And uh, uh, what we would have in the first year is we'd have like a variety of the different professors giving us an intro so that we could choose. And he was amazing. I mean, the guy was magnetic. Imagine a combination of like Hannibal Lecter, (laughs) I I don't know if he's going to hear this, and Norman Foster put those together and a real world expert in Islamic art. I mean, he was the kind of professor that after a lecture, you actually wanted to get up and clap. What was his name? Robert Hillenbrand. Um, oh. And he's, he's still around. He's a living legend. So let me stop you there and go straight away onto a sidetrack, if this is all right. I hope you don't mind. My daughter has just finished her A-levels, uh, and we're torn between whether she should go to art college or whether she should study history of art. Should she go and study history of art? Well, here's a plug for Edinburgh. You could do a joint degree and do both. You could do... Did you do art. that? No, I didn't. I just did art history. When I I was at Manchester University and I did drama in Italian and the drama department was on the first floor and the history of art department was on the second floor or the other way around. Yeah, no, it was that way around. And so the history of art department would always walk down the stairs past the drama department. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was where all the hot chicks were doing history of art. But also it wasn't just the hot chicks, it was the posh chicks. It was quite a sort of... Um, you know, I imagine there's a higher density of public school people doing history of art, for example, than there are, I don't know, doing sociology or whatever subject it is. But they say that the the value of university is not so much what you learn there, it's the networks you build. And I imagine you can make quite powerful networks doing history of art. Yeah, that's true. But actually, going back to the choice, you could also do a fine art degree where there's an art historical component. So you can do both. It's easy to slip between the two. And yeah, absolutely right. You have a lot of, um, I guess, like posh public school people doing history of art because 
it's like a, it's mostly a non-vocational subject. Mm-hmm. I mean, very few people who graduate manage to find a job. But if you wanted to be an art dealer, doing history of art is surely a good thing to do. And art dealing is a good industry. Well, yeah, but what's quite interesting is actually within my gallery network in Dubai, I think I'm probably the only one who did an art history degree. Everyone else did accountancy, of course. Well, there's something like that. Or they they did that, they did banking, they did law, they decided after like 10, 15 years. To be an art dealer, is it about you know, surely having a good rooted understanding of the history is very important to you'll be able to sell that. Or is it not? And it's just about trading, basically. Um, Well, for me, it does. And so, I mean, that's something which I bring to it. And sometimes I have to hide that geeky side. Okay. Right? Because if you do, sometimes if you do too much explanation, it's like, well, you kind of got me in the second sentence. Yeah, yeah. I just and now kind you've of lost me. Yeah, you've lost me. So you have to you have to get your audience right. They don't yeah. necessarily want to have like a deconstruction of exactly what your conceptual work is about. I mean, modern art presumably is different, but if you're dealing in any kind of antiquity, whether it's antiques or or old paintings or whatever it is, I, I would have thought a knowledge of history, whether you acquire it at university or elsewhere. It's kind of invaluable, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Of course it is. I mean, you, and, and I think the thing is that if you do have an interest in this, it becomes something which you do spend doing in your spare time. So your hobby kind of becomes your career. When I was doing Islamic art, and by the way, I haven't really been doing it for the last 15 years, but we can get onto that. Okay. I still have a kind of geeky interest in it, and that's fine. Yeah. But one of the great things about it when I was studying it and then when I was working in that field was unlike a lot of like Western art where, especially historical art, where a lot of the research and a lot of the academia has been done already. Mm. A lot of it was in fact kind of total green field. Yeah. I mean, you know, or blue sky. The blind spot. Some, yeah, something where you could study something which no one had actually looked at before. So um, what I was doing was the origin of um, the prayer niche in a mosque, the mihrab. Um, and doing research, this is for my thesis, my undergrad thesis, that no one had really looked at before. Right. And you could do that. There was something exciting about that because the scholarship hadn't been done yet. It was similar to what happened to you then at Christie's. You took a job at Christie's and then you, you ended up with an opportunity or you created an opportunity. Yeah, well, the thing is, I was I was very, very lucky. Like I said before, very few people who did art history actually managed to then turn it into a career. Yeah. And I happened to be doing the right thing at the right time and, and having some very lucky breaks and just jumping in with both feet. So the first of those was replace someone at Christie's who'd been there for nine years. And I think part of the reason how I got that job was when I was still at university and still doing my degree a couple of years earlier, I I just went down on the train and somehow got myself an interview, even though there was no job with the head of department, basically saying, here's me, I'm super keen. Did you kind of knock on the door kind of thing? Pretty much. And he's like, I haven't got any jobs. And then somehow when one came up two years later, I get, I get a call and, and that's what I was doing. But then after that... Doing that kind of thing is so valuable because it, it gets yeah. you known, it get, the guy looks at you go, this guy's keen, he's hungry. Yeah, exactly. And then the break came because he would travel the entire time and there I was like 25, somehow left in charge of the Islamic art department for weeks at a time <laughs> in Christie's. And I have to say a bit naive and like, you know, not so experienced, but with a lot of cocky confidence. And um, a guy came in, uh, they call them runners. 
And what they are, um, they're not dealers so much as they take artworks on consignment from the owners, and then they try and hawk them out to either a collector or a gallerist or a or, or an auction house. And so one came in and he was showing me this, this flip book of these pictures of this, this drape which goes over the Kaaba, which is like the, the, the holy of the holies in Islam. And these are all from the 19th century. Essentially what happens is it gets covered every year with these um, highly embroidered uh, silk drapes. And every year um, it gets cut up and the best bits get given to people. So anyway, um, he comes in with this collection of them from the 19th century. It's the best collection outside of the Topkapi Palace in Istanbul, which is, you know, where they keep some of the best pieces. And I had just cottoned on to um, there being the opening of a Christie's office. In fact, no bricks and mortar, just like a rep being announced and there being an exhibition. Um, which was going to sort of take place. This is in Dubai in 2005. And I kind of put two and two together. And I said to the runner, if you were to consign them to me at Christie's rather than, you know, to the other auction houses, somehow I would try and get you an exhibition in Dubai. Don't know if I can do it, but let's try. And he's like, yeah, if you do that, then I'll consign it to you. Then I was at a um, a boardroom meeting where I was just supposed to be taking notes for my boss. Remember, I was very junior. I was 25. And um, they're all talking about this exhibition. um, And they're going to have, you know, some Islamic art, some amazing jewelry and all of this. And I was just thinking, well, yeah, but they're not going to want this in Dubai. They're going to want these enormous curtains from the Kaaba. So I put up my hand And I explained to everyone what these are, pretty much as I've just done now. And they're like, how big are these? One of them is six meters high. One of them is 20 meters long. How big is our exhibition space? And they're like, oh, they won't fit. So I just get up and I say, look, what you're showing is all well and good, but no one's going to be interested in this. They're just going to be interested in my stuff. Can you guarantee me right now we can have a bigger exhibition space? And they go, don't know who the hell this guy is, but it sounds great. Let's do it. <laughs> and so that's how I got into Dubai. So I started traveling there the whole time. That has all of the elements of stuff we've talked about. It's got luck. It's got, you know, you've got to put your head up. Do you know what I mean? It's just one of those moments. It's the Eminem song of like, you know, yeah. when you find, will you, will you do what needs to be done? You could have not put your hand up. No. And a lot of people, there's a lot of situations we've all been in that we sit there and think, oh, I better not say anything, you know? And then you're like, you missed, you missed it. You know? Yeah, well, the thing is, it's one of these things where you have absolutely nothing to lose. You don't have yes. your boss sitting next to you telling you to shut up. Yes. And it's like one of these things now or never. So anyway, I started going out there quite a bit. The rep who was fantastic at getting people together and also making pe- people feel great. She wasn't really an art person. She was more of a people person. So she got me out to talk to the new clients about Islamic art. And they thought this was hilarious, this sort of 25-year-old Brit (laughs) telling them about their their own history. (laughs) But anyway, we were a great double act. And um, what they told us was, it's all well and good you having auctions like in, you know, London or Paris or New York, but do something for Dubai and do something different. Do something to distinguish what you're doing here from elsewhere. So with that, we cooked up an idea to do modern Middle Eastern art. Wow. And within the space of, I'm just thinking, this is 
This is just how quickly things would move back then. I mean, basically, I guess the board of Christie's saw the opportunity. Everyone had dollar signs in their eyes, yeah. I think, back in the in the. Noughties. And it was greenfield. There wasn't too yeah. many players already saying, well, you know, it's my patch. There anything. were no players. Yeah, exactly. There was no one saying it was my patch. Who's going to claim it? Who's going to stick their flag in first? Yeah, yeah. And um, so within the space of, I think it was April, early April, when we did that first exhibition, it was August, early August, um, between... April and August in 2005, the decision had been made that there was going to be an auction on a particular day in Dubai, and I had to go off and put it together. So it was like that. It was very, very quick. And we didn't know really what we were doing. I mean, I think if we'd been more experienced and a bit less naive and maybe like a little bit more jaded, we wouldn't have thought of it. But there was no infrastructure whatsoever. And that all comes from Mr. Robert Hill, because Mr. Robert Hill inspired you into a form of... And it's very true when you get taught, you know, it's not so much what's... All subjects are interesting, you know, really. Yeah. It depends on the teacher. Oh, you know yeah. What I mean? So, yeah, Robert Hill and Brandt, he gave me a very useful bit of advice. And the bit of advice that he gave me, and I followed it, actually, he goes, because I was thinking, I want to, like, do a master's and a PhD and all of that in Islamic art. And he goes... Don't do that. What you should try and do is try and get yourself a job in the commercial art world. You'll handle so much more. You'll decide what it is that you like. And then maybe you'll do a PhD. And, yeah. you know, that was now like 20 years ago. And That's I good still, advice. Get on with it, basically. It. Yeah. You know, because you, you end up, you become um, institutionalized when you get down the PhD and stuff. You Absolutely. just become super nerd. Yeah. And did that auction make money? Well, the thing is that it was always a bit of a risk because it was a huge risk, actually, um, because it cost quite a lot of money to make. Who paid? Totally Christie's. Or, yeah, Christie's. Yeah. But it was totally, um, totally untried and tested. I mean, I was going to places that didn't even know what an auction was or what Christie's was. Yes, it did make money. It made more than three times what our best estimate was. Oh, brilliant. Um, so, because but, people... Paid a lot for the art or because everything sold? Or? Well, the thing is, like, um, I mean, it was the first 10 lots. I have to look. So I went around countries like um, Lebanon, Syria, Iran, Egypt, Morocco, Tunisia, Qatar. Why? To gather interest? Yeah, to, no, to, to gather things and also just to research. I had you say to, to gather things, to find art to sell in this auction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. because to, to research what sort of art was selling. I mean, the thing is that this was a completely new category for an auction house. So it wasn't as if anything had any track record. I mean, these days you can check, and even back then, you could check the track record of like an artist on a price database like ArtPrice or ArtNet. Um, but there was nothing like this for Middle Eastern artists. It hadn't been tried before. You didn't even really have a Middle Eastern art market at all. You just had different countries where it would sometimes overlap, like there'd be an Egyptian art market or a Lebanese art market, and it would be based in that country. And it wasn't internationalized at all. And I think it was the process of putting all of these things together and then putting a you know, recognized international brand um, seal of approval, i.e. Christie's. It just became much bigger than the sum of its parts. And so like very quickly... You had a lot of people who had never been to Dubai. And back then, I mean, Dubai was a place which is very different from now. I mean, it had less than one third of the population that it has now. 
it was very much a, a, a work in progress. I mean, it still is, but really back then it was. And it had no kind of cultural scene whatsoever. So for people to kind of suddenly come there, it, it was the start of something. But this has sound like a ridiculous question, but <laughs> it comes from a good place. Is the idea of an auction specifically a British or a Western European thing, or does it do they exist in other cultures? Is it auctions? It was a really funny thing because auctions do happen in other places, but I think it's fair to say. And when you look at you know the three biggest auction houses, there's Christie's, Sotheby's, and Bonhams, and each of British. them is about two hundred or more years old. Um, they're all British. Somehow, the British art and furniture auctions really became the kind of go-to because we places. nicked it all and we had to sell it, really, yeah. didn't we? You know, we didn't have any much art ourselves. We picked it all up from around the world, and we were like, "Well, anyone wants some of this?" Well, they, that's a that, very low view you have <laughs> that, of our that, great that's, empire. That, and that's that's. <laughs> That's not untrue. Yes, yes. I mean, the thing is that also you do have French auction houses that were doing the same thing, but somehow they just didn't translate into these big global companies. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the thing is actually, we really didn't know what we were getting into back then. This is in 2006 in Dubai. Um, we didn't know whether the local culture would take auctions at all because, of course, we were thinking about haggling, yes. which is like an auction yeah. in reverse. The price goes down. Yeah. Um, we even thought that, um, you know, we had people saying to us, oh God, you know, the locals, they'll just sit on their hands so they don't bid. All sorts of like silly rumours. So you've done your first auction in Dubai with Christie's mm -hmm. and then at some point you went solo. Tell us about that. Well, yes. I mean, the thing is about starting a new market was, I mean, firstly, yeah, it's a greenfield site. So you're putting things in where you've kind of made a calculation about whether this is an interesting artist or this is an interesting field. And very quickly, um, it becomes, actually, the auction can become quite conservative because certain artists become looked at and traded and some of the others are not so looked at. Mm. So it became, in some ways, for me, a bit static. And then also, and that's the other thing that I think you like touched on quite some time ago, Andy, was that because no one was doing it, I could kind of do whatever I wanted. And very quickly, um, quite a few people started hitching their careers to this field that I was doing. And so I spent quite a lot of time doing internal politicking uh, with, uh, with people who um, were who otherwise claimed that it was them or... You right, know. right. So, so that, was, that was not so interesting. And I mean, it wasn't exactly a startup, but it felt like a startup. And when it then became... Um, something which was more regularized, it was less interesting to me. So I was wanting to um, do something more kind of personal, work with artists that I found interesting rather than artists who were obviously sort of commercially successful because as an, as an auction house specialist, you've really got your eye on the market more than anything else. Yeah. And um, I had a chat with um, a friend of mine who had previously been running the art fair in Dubai and she was asking me for some career advice. And I'm not sure what I gave her. Um, but after she left, about half an hour later, I called her up and I said, just forget my advice. I'm going to quit Christie's and let's open a gallery together. Wow. And she thought about it for probably about 
10 seconds and then said yes. Wow. And I think that's probably how you start a company without really thinking about it too much. And what was the transition like? Was the first year bad or? What, well, you know, it was an interesting year. Tell I mean, me how bad it got. No, <laughs> that, no, it was an interesting year because, I mean, first of all, um, you kind of work out who your friends and your real clients are when you leave a, um, you know, multinational household name. Yes. And then some don't come with you. And then some actually you become a lot closer to because they're dealing with you rather than um, dealing with the brand. And then also, I think we had a lot of somehow sort of beginner's luck and beginner's advantage. Because when you're setting something up, which people have been following you for some time, they actually want to somehow invest in you Mm. quite quickly. So we actually made a lot of sales in our first year. But what we didn't have was any kind of knowledge of like cash flow or experience of mm. cash flow um, or the idea that you could have like, you know, a couple of like bad years after mm. a good year. So, uh, of course. Yeah. So I'd say our first year was actually pretty good, followed by two years which were not so good and we didn't have such a good grip on expenses. Right. So basically, that's actually quite classic. I, I've experienced that. I mean, one, you had this to be give Christie's credit, this incredible brand. So it's not just I'm Will, some young bloke he's talking about Islam. It's like, oh, he was head of Christie's art. You know, it's led him through the door, you know, so that you carry that. And it shows how important working for a big brand often is on a CV because you need to throw a name out that people will go, oh, okay. But then that is quite common that you can have a good first year, but you don't then reserve the bad years. You think, oh, it'll always be like this. And then it, and then it hits you, the realities, it drops and the cash flow. And okay, so that was a bit more of a struggle And then also um, what we found was that uh, there were certain shows that we would do or some some artists that we worked with in a way because we we thought that they would be, you know, good commercially rather than necessarily have our hearts in it. Yes. And um, after a few years of that, we kind of worked out that actually not a good idea. Oh, really? If your heart's not in it and you can't really stand behind it and defend it, for us, at least, we couldn't really handle Because in a gallery work. space, that's important. The passion's got to come through. I but think so, When someone says, yeah. oh, I'm not sure about this, say, oh, listen to me. You know? Exactly. I mean, you know, for us, for our kind of gallery, it's really important to actually believe in the artist. And now it's like this. I mean, if we don't believe in the artist, we, could, we can't sell a single piece. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. At Ori Clark, we understand that many of our clients want to be better informed about the issues they face, but don't have the time to wade through all of the legalese and accounting jargon to get there. We know that people love our easy-to-read quick guides on the most common problems facing our clients, and if you're here, then you probably like podcasts. So we thought, why not combine the two and make it even easier for people to access the knowledge of our team of multidisciplinary experts? Dominic Frisby sat down with Simon Walsh and Ian Phipps to talk about best practice for setting up a UK company. Ian, we're going to start with you. What is the best way to establish a business in the UK? Thanks, Dominic. Well, typically people establish a UK limited company. And actually that that is typically our advice is always that UK limited company is the best in most circumstances. I'll come on to some pros and cons of other things, but very easy to establish. It's very low cost. People are often surprised that you can do it without having to put any money in to start with, which is always a plus, because there's usually enough funds being spent elsewhere if you're establishing a business. 
You can basically do it with no UK directors um, and no UK shareholders. There doesn't have to be a UK presence or a UK person involved. It's very simple to do. Usually, Companies House, typically, we used to be able to, we used to promise people do, could do it in two hours. Unfortunately, under the COVID regime, it now takes, you know, maybe two days, but typically we're still getting things within 24 hours. So it's very quick, very simple, very low cost. You can find our audio quick guides in the resource library at auriclark.com or search for Ori Clark Quick Guides wherever you get your podcasts. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or to follow us on Spotify so that you never miss an episode. Now, back to the chat. What is the most uncomfortable truth about being in business? I think the most uncomfortable truth um, is how much everything costs. I mean, it's something which, as an employee, um, I would just, you know, ask for a budget and it would get signed off. But actually working out how much something costs in relation to what your profit margin is, yeah. is, is, is something which takes quite a few years to actually sink your teeth into and, and to accept. That's it's an interesting answer. And actually, the, the, the last podcast we did, she was saying it's not turnover minus salaries equals profit. There's a lot more going on than that. And it, it, it it's the pennies add up, isn't it? I'm always amazed with my credit card bill. You know, I'm like, I only spent a bit here, a bit there. And it's like, how much? You yeah. know, it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, for us, actually, um, things like um, shipping has gone up hugely, not just because... Hard to estimate and budget for shipping Yeah, too. exactly. And it's not just because of the, um, of the carriers, but it's also things like, um, you know, raw materials for crating. Mm. It's more difficult to get the wood. Framing, that's more difficult too. And also it can be delayed as well. Um, so, uh, you know, I've just had some pictures framed and it's taken three months. Usually it would just take a couple of weeks or a month. These sorts of things, and especially like within the art business where a lot of it has to be timely. So, for example, if we've got an exhibition in the gallery or we have an exhibition, say, like an art fair in a different country, you have to get, you absolutely have to get the artwork there on time. If it's for an art fair and it arrives a week late, that's... <laughs> yeah, you're I'm on the street. Yeah, you're totally, totally screwed and you're not going to get It's like sending cash in the movie yeah. for the premiere of the film and sending it to the cinema a week after the screening. It's right. Just... No, I occasionally text you during one of those periods and you're like, I'm getting ready for an exhibition. Fuck yeah, exactly. Oh I'm sorry. I'm so sorry about that. It's like, yeah, just eyes, eyes, eyes on the prize somehow. So all of these things do make things quite difficult. What's most misunderstood about being an employer? What I find one of the most difficult things to get my head around is there's a kind of generational expectation, um, which is different from, say, the way that we started off as trainees to the way that, you know, other people in their 30s or less would would consider. And I think we have to somehow bridge that gap and, and be a bit more understanding, but at the same time, actually get the work done. You're insinuating that the the, yeah, the younger code. people there's some code going on there's there. There's some code what, what going on there. The younger younger people uh, lack uh, a work ethic, but we yeah. have to appreciate how to communicate or something. Yes, yeah. I think so. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the thing is that my my traineeship, and I did say something about this beforehand at Christie's, was kind of like my boss goes away for three weeks, and I have to hold the fort somehow. Yeah, with yeah. very little input, and if I messed up, I would hear about it and if I did well it would be like yeah okay well done we've made quite a few mistakes with people that we've employed who've presented very well 
And then when it comes to actually getting down to the nitty gritty, haven't always performed. What's the hardest thing you do in your job? Well, the hardest thing that we do is uh, managing egos. And I think everyone, well, in the art world, everyone has a bit of an ego. And that would be us to I have some the same extent. Problem with Andy. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, but that would also be, you know, the artists, the collectors, the curators. And, um, and I think it's, 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 it's really about that. I think ego is such a good comment. You meet people who don't have ego. There's not many of them. I was yesterday at work, I was saying to a girl who's worked for Sage, and I said, You're salt of the earth. You know, you're one of the most noble, humble people I've ever met. She got funny, but I really meant it because I was like, You know, usually you're always dancing around people's egos, including my own. You know, artists yeah. have got massive egos, haven't they? That's why they're, partly why they became artists. Well, you yeah. kind of have to. But there are, there are some who manage it better than others. And something that we get maybe like once a month is that email in your inbox in the morning, which is just going to completely wreck your day. It could be quite rude or quite pissed off. Yeah. That. How wish dare you, you hang me next to Boris Johnson? Which you know? didn't see coming. And <laughs> what kind of email? The, a kind of email. I mean, it, it could be from a um, curator, could be from an artist, could be from a collector. Um, that has uh, taken a kind of personal affront to something that you've done that you just didn't see coming at all. What is the sort of biggest realisation you've had through your failures or drawbacks? The thing is, I think within the art world, because so much of it is so personal and you invest in it emotionally quite a lot, I mean, you really do. Like, I think I've been sort of getting this across is that you kind of have to love it. And with the highs also come a few lows is to balance out that kind of emotional involvement and detach a bit and sort of see bigger picture and longer term. And I think that's the, the main thing. I mean, for every success that we have, we could have a failure. And somehow just to see the successes for what they are and let other things wash over. Do you see artists who you think are really good just getting totally ignored and artists who you think are crap getting loads of acclaim and hu earning huge big bucks? Yeah, I mean, that definitely happens. But if there are artists that we think are being ignored, and actually, actually, that's something that we've been looking at, like, intensively over the last five years or so, to look at artists who have been ignored, that we think need to be, kind of be represented. Yeah, but absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of hype and sort of froth about artists that we think are crap. And the thing is that... Um, What's, what's kind of interesting is that this process has just been accelerated, actually, over the last 18 months. Because we haven't been able to go to exhibitions and because so much of it has just gone online, Instagram has been something which has sort of accelerated trends. And there are certain artists who've just become Instagram famous. Are you in the NFT game at all? No, but I do have a book I could recommend about reading it. I mean, the thing is about NFTs, I'm very, very interested in them. Um, would think maybe more in terms of investing rather than creating them. However, I'm still having difficulty um, seeing how good quality artwork can be made as an NFT. I agree. I'm not. I mean, I, I I like the idea that you know you're 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 buying a sort of ticket to the artist is having a direct sort of, you know, I've only got 10 of these and you're going to be written down in history as the one who owns one of these 10 yeah. things. But making doing them as pure artworks themselves right. is a rather limited, like... Yeah, know, exactly, exactly. Acorn 200 or whatever. But I think, like, maybe if you think of them in terms of, like, baseball cards or collectibles yeah, like yeah. that, there was an auction house specialist and I should have actually revised this before coming on air because it's a good, it's a good one. 
an auction house specialist at one of the two major auction houses. This guy was in his 30s and he's in charge of digital art, who when asked by the chairman, would you please explain to me this NFT business in terms that, you know, a child would understand? To which the quick-witted specialist comes back, if you were a child, I would not need to explain it. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> I mean, true. there you go. That's the sort of generational thing, isn't it? I sold an NFT, by the way. Did it do well? Uh, $1,450. Very good. Pretty good. It's not bad. Did you make it yourself? Well, I hired a projectionist and we went round buildings in London projecting uh, anti-authoritarian slogans on the outside of these buildings. (laughs) And one of the ones was we uh, projected on the outside of the Bank of England, Bitcoin fixes this. Oh, nice. (laughs) Wow. Controversial. And I sold the photo of that. All right. How long did you project it for? You had to run away. Oh, literally like... Not even 30 seconds. Yeah. Like you make out afterwards it was there all night. But the reality is you've got a certain amount of time between when you start projecting on the outside of the building and when the security guards come yeah. out. And you you have it like a slideshow, like a PowerPoint, and you sort of click one, take as many photos, click to the next one, right, take right, as right. many photos. So what platform did you put it on? Rareable. Very good. I, I have actually sold one and made one too, thanks to uh, Ben Thompson, who came on this uh, podcast, talking me into it. But yeah, I think I, I like it as an idea. Apparently there's problems though with you can um, you can cheat them. There's uh, You can hack them and stuff, yeah. things like that, you know. And, 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 but, and also it's like 98% of NFTs don't sell mm-hmm. or something. Most of them just sit there looking for... Which of course you don't hear about, yeah. so that's fine. You yeah. only hear about the, the 50 million one mm-hmm. and whatever it is. Who out there can we look to learn from in business right now? In art business. In the art business. I mean, like, personally, the people that I learn from are my peers. And um, speaking to um, gallery owners and, you know, art dealers who, here's a caveat, who can be open and actually honest with their information. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I found them extremely helpful. I think we may have had the answer to this earlier from your professor, but what's the best piece of advice you were ever given? The best piece of advice was just not to go into academia. Yeah, get on with it. Just get on with it. Yeah, yeah. Learn on the job. Do you think that applies to 18-year-olds who are leaving school with their A-levels and not doing degrees as well? Well, I did do a degree and that was kind of helpful, but it could well be that too. Yeah, I mean, so many things you can actually learn on the job or, you know, through your own study. It sounds like you should go to university, check out all the lecturers. If none of them are really inspiring, leave and get on with your life. (laughs) Sounds like the basic summary, you know. What are your top three reads? Uh, So top three reads in the art world, The Dark Side of the Boom by Georgina Adam, which is is really focusing on the, um, the top end of the art world and the negative impact on the boom in the 21st century. And then another one called Seven Days in the Art World by Sarah Thornton. For people who are actually in the art world, it's a little bit basic. I mean, she writes it as a guide, a bit like as a sort of outsider, but it's interesting as an outsider looking in. She spends time in Christie's. She spends time at the Venice Biennial. Um, She visits the studio of Takashi Murakami, who's probably the most famous Japanese artist, amongst others. It's quite an interesting kind of insight. And then the other one, which I'm trying to get through at the moment, is um, NFT and crypto art, which is by Daniel L. Bray. 
What are you most excited about for the future of your business? Well, something which uh, we were sort of really struggling about for years was trying to get younger people interested in art collecting. Um, and actually what's happened over the last 18 months is millennials and younger, um, we found, especially looking like sort of through social media, um, have really got into it. Mm. I think one of the things is that because... Um, so much of the culture was about experiences. And when you weren't able to really have any experiences for the best part of a year, people would start looking at art much more. Mm. Um, so it's been really exciting sort of seeing this kind of shift and seeing how then that's going to impact what, what we do, not just um, who we sell to, but what we show. The growth of networks is transformed because of things like Instagram and social media. So they can not just, when one gets into it, they bring all of their friends. And they can share it with each other. Yeah. If there was anything in the world you could change over the next five years, what would it be? Oof. Magic wand. Magic wand. Um, anything I could change. In terms of my business, it would be reducing tariffs on shipping. I mean, my God, it kills us all the time. And at the moment, it's kind of strangling the, the art industry here in the UK um, with the new regulations, Brexit regulations that no one's really understood. So, yeah, just have to have like free movement of, of goods, really. So what is that? Moving stuff from the UK to Europe or from Europe to the UK? Both. Both. It's really difficult. I mean, you used to just be able to... And I know this, this is a bit of a cop-out because it's looking backwards, but you used to be able to stick something on a van and get it into, you know, let's say, Paris the next day at almost no cost. Very, very low cost. A couple of hundred quid. No tariffs, no tax, no nothing. Um, these days, I don't know how long it would take. And in terms of the duty and the VAT, I mean, it's a big fiddle. Right. This brings us to the main event, the business versus bullshit quickfire round. D, cue the music. This is where we reel off a list of key terms and all you have to do is tell us whether you think it's business or bullshit. Will, are you ready? Uh, yes. <laughs> Diversity quotas. Hmm. Business. Controversial. Oh my god! <laughs> Can't carry on. Um, Stand-up yeah. meetings. <laughs> Bullshit. Slogans in the workplace. Bullshit. Pub lunches. Business. Ding. Correct. <laughs> Formal workloads. Bullshit. Uh, board minutes. Business. Very good. Exercising. Business. NDAs. Business. Acronyms. Sometimes funny, but often bullshit. Good answer. Coffee. Business. Office dogs. <sighs> Business. <laughs> yeah, correct. Well done. Great stuff, Will. And um, if our listeners want to find out more about you online, what you do, and so on, what's the best way to do that? Best way to do it is either on Instagram, that we're all looking at the entire time now. And uh, it is Laurie Shabibi, which is L-A-W-R-I-E, 
S-H-A-B-I-B-I, um, which also reads Laurie's Habibi for any Arabic speakers out there who think that's funny. <laughs> um, and uh, on the website, same thing, best way to find out. I like the name Laurie Shabibi. It sounds like a sort of Arab-Scottish alliance, yeah. doesn't it? Uh, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we never asked about your business partner, actually. I've never... Is that the... Um, I know you did mention her, because that was the uh, a friend of yours at the time who came for some advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's Asma al-Shabibi, and she's um, Iraqi-British. So oh, born in Iraq and partly brought up in Britain, which I think is absolutely essential because otherwise we wouldn't understand each other's sense of humour. Yeah, crucial. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you very much to Will Laurie for joining us. A big thank you to you, dear listener. And we'll be back with a new episode next week. In the meantime, please rate and review us on Apple, follow us on Spotify, and come and say hi on Instagram and Twitter at bizwithoutbs. That's B-I-Z without B-S. Until next time, it's cheerio. Business Without Bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark. We've been helping individuals and businesses cut through red tape in order to prosper since 1935. To find out how our team of multidisciplinary experts can help you, whatever your needs, email us at contact at auriclark.com. That is contact at O-U-R-Y-C-L-A-R-K.com or via our website. Ori Clark, you provide the questions, we'll give you an answer.